enjoying your dessert while we, while we resume. Uh, I remind you that next week's session is, are we dementia friendly? Are we dementia friendly? So we'll explore some of the issues around dementia and our community. Um, so Trevor is back here and I'm gonna give him this mic and invite people to migrate over to the uh, lectern over there with the mic and raise your question, give your name, be brief about your question, and we'll uh, explore this further. Well, I hope you, uh, I'm sure you must have enjoyed your meal. I sure enjoyed it. Uh, the cake and the ice cream, too. I'll have to hit the gym at some point today. <laughs> um, yes, any questions that you have, uh, happy to uh, try to field them. I don't know. Oh, now it's on. There we go. Okay. Loud and I'll clear. stand back. Uh, my name is James Van Loon. I'm from Pincher Creek. Uh, still the wind, wind energy capital of Canada for now, although uh, Ontario and Quebec are really giving us a run for our money. What is the most important thing that we need to be doing? Taking into account everything that you shared with us here, looking forward, what does Alberta need to be doing most? That is a, a great question. I think what we actually need from our political leadership is a, uh, a better and convincing and legitimate roadmap of how do we get from where we are to someplace down the road. One that is, that faces the situation straight on and says, this is what's going on here. We're not gonna be nostalgic about it. We're not gonna talk about fantasy things. We're gonna actually lay out for you, here's where we are, here's where we want to get to, and here's kind of the timeline and what we need to do to get to there. So uh, Alberta's, we actually have a lot of things going for us. We have a really well-educated workforce. Uh, overall, it's a pretty young workforce. It's a, it's a very well-socialized to the idea of work kind of workforce. Um, we have a lot of things going for us. But we need to actually know how we're actually going to apply those things to get to where we want to go. So I think we're kind of lacking from political leaderships as a whole any kind of sense of vision other than, you know, we just want to win an election, right? It's that kind of thing we've got locked into the last years. And, and you know, I'm old enough to think back without actually necessarily always liking every politician who used to come along years ago. But we used to have politicians with a certain amount of gravitas that could actually lay out for us. They had some idea what they wanted to do. Now it seems to be we just want to win an election, but we don't know what the heck we're going to do once we get there. And there's, there's too much of that going on right now. So that would be my main thing. We need some visionaries, but we also need to take our own responsibilities to help shape that vision and show how we're gonna get there. Because that's the only way we overcome the, the fear, the anxiety that a lot of people have out there at the present time. Uh, Barb Phillips, thank you, Dr. Harrison. It's a very good summary of the yellow vest in France as well as Alberta. Uh, but I did notice on your timeline, you did not put Lethbridge's rallies, which occurred here in December, January on your timeline. And so I, 
I kind of think, because I was part of the pro-immigrant portion mm -hmm. against the yellow vests here in Lethbridge, uh, five of the times, I think, until it got too cold, um, <laughs> uh, that we addressed that. My, and the way I would like it addressed is it was a whole grab bag of all of those things they were <coughs> protesting here in Lethbridge, although yep. it was um, numbered in about a dozen at most. Yeah. But I'd all, but mostly I'd like you to address the fact that there was a noticeable Nazi flavor to a lot of the protests here in Lethbridge, which frankly worries me. So mm -hmm. how do we as citizens of this city address that? Good question. Yeah, as I said, uh, actually there's, there's kind of pockets of neo-Nazis that crop up every time there's kind of anxiety. They kind of, I think, want to piggyback on the, con the legitimate concerns that people have and sort of intrude their own uh, particular interests. Uh, yes, I, I was aware that there were uh, some protests that went on here. And uh, going after immigrants is a, uh, always kind of a uh, popular thing in some quarters to go after, to blame immigrants for, for things. Interesting enough, of course, Lethbridge is uh, one of the better things about Lethbridge, actually, is it's quite vibrant with quite large immigrant community right now. I think it's actually really added to it. So any time that uh, there are certain things that are beyond the pale in terms of political discourse, and one of them is, is racism, anti-immigrant, kind of sentiments, okay, because we know historically where that leads. So I, I do think that needs to be confronted uh, any time it actually comes, uh, comes up. And fortunately, I think it is, is a relatively small group, but you also want to get rid of it before it starts to merge and become larger. So uh, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Uh, some of the anti-immigrant rhetoric was anti-UN and the fact that we've sold out, that we have lost control over immigration, et cetera, et cetera. Could you tell us a little bit about what happened at the UN and why is this brought up? Why, why did this, this sentiment come out of that UN uh, agreement or whatever it was? Yeah, I'm not a total expert on this. My understanding, though, is that a large number of countries at the UN have got together. There's, there is an issue of concern around uh, refugees and immigrants and the fact that there's so many kind of stateless people out there right now. So how to deal with people in a fair, equitable, and just manner who are becoming increasingly stateless. And I, I think not just now, but concerns in the future. So the United Nations is, has uh, been looking at protocols that every country should sign on to in terms of how to deal with uh, this issue. And, uh, but let's face it, there, there's a lot of kind of uh, uh, misunderstanding about the United Nations in all kinds of places, here in Canada and in the United States as well, where the United Nations doesn't always have a lot of friends. And so uh, what it does from the perspective of some people is it's a great, uh, you know, money-sucking machine that doesn't do anything, it's just a bunch of bureaucrats. And so it's easy to turn that sentiment against, uh, to use the United Nations as a kind of vehicle, vehicle for, again, turning against the immigrants. So I think that's kind of the genesis of it. It becomes yet another kind of part of the grab bag of, of antipathies that people had. It, it actually came out of no place, too. It was, like, amazing how quickly it was, like, where did that come? I thought you were talking about pipelines and carbon tax, and all of a sudden, you know, there's something else. I'm Douglas Mitchell. 
Dr. Harrison, thank you for a pretty comprehensive review of the situation as we know it here in Alberta. What thank I you. want to focus in on is comparisons. The comparison with the yellow vest situation, which you addressed, is very different from the situation in France and the situation here. And I think people should realize we, we piggybacked on that for very different reasons, as you pointed out. And I think those of us that know the text of Les Miserables or have seen the musical realize that street protests in France, which have morphed into yellow vests now, are a very different thing mm -hmm. from what we're facing here. And I'm apprehensive about, I understand the French situation. The situation here is, is complex, I think, in terms of the, the basis of this, the grassroots are causing the problem. And uh, when I hear some of the things you're talking about, like climate change being ignored and that kind of thing, I think it, I'd just like you to address this question of the comparison. I don't think we should be calling them yellow vests if you want to compare them with Macron's problem in France. Yeah, the, uh, and again, you know, people are free, I guess, to pick up whatever label they want to use for their uh, particular movements. As I point out, the two movements are very different. Um, I don't want to uh, paint by any means, actually, that the uh, yellow vest movement uh, in France or, or more generally, actually, the political situation in France is not problematic on a lot of different levels. So I've said the Yellow Vest movement is kind of a working class protest against a lot of different things that are going on there. France has its own uh, particular issues going on. The, the right wing there, the anti-immigrant movement, uh, is extremely strong in France. And uh, again, what you've had there is the really the, uh, the decline of the two-party system, the traditional party systems, which is actually happening in a lot of parts of the world, right? I mean, so in the United States, the Democrats and Republicans are kind of both actually uh, uh, disliked. Uh, you look at countries right around uh, throughout Europe, the old traditional parties are not, uh, don't seem to be dealing with the issues very well. So there is a kind of rising, uh, 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 neo-Nazi far-right movement in France, and uh, uh, so it is of concern there, and to what extent even some people who might be part of the Yellow Vest movement might find themselves also veering over to support some pretty uh, dangerous uh, groups on the right is, uh, is for sure a real concern. But, uh, but there are some obvious differences between the two movements here and in France. Uh, Trevor Page. I'm uh, one of those UN bureaucrats <laughs> that suck money <laughs> from everyone, although I'm retired now and I was at three of the Lethbridge Yellow Vest rallies. Um, what they thought was happening with the UN um, compact on global migration was that Canada had agreed for the UN to flood Canada and other countries with refugees, which is absolute nonsense. I did explain it to several of the yellow vests that basically the UN has gotten together a global compact uh, 
which 146 countries have signed up to, because of the chaos that's being caused for the very reasons you articulated mm -hmm. in terms of <clears throat> refugee movements, and not just refugees, but global migration. We've just seen the tip of the iceberg. It's going to get very much worse. So the US has opted out of the global compact, and there are several European countries that have done so as well. But it's a total voluntary thing, and it's an attempt to bring order into chaos, mm -hmm. which we can all see coming. I have a question for you, Trevor, though, as well, and that is the Canadian extreme right, and specifically the three C's, which had a rally in Ottawa last year. And do you see, you sort of indicated that um, the yellow vests here are a one-off. I've got there, I wouldn't call it a manifesto, but this is just a list of their demands, and you covered all of them in your presentation. But I would suspect that quite a few of them resonate even with people in this room. So I don't think they should be dismissed. Mm -hmm. But can you tell us about the extreme right wing in, in Canada? Uh, it's not something I've particularly looked at in the last while. I, I will say, actually, going back to what your, your comment just earlier there about there are a lot of things that appeal perhaps to a wider kind of audience. So that's why I said earlier that there are the yellow vesters who I think themselves come from a fairly narrow kind of occupational and class base, but they may have sympathy outside of that. So I think that that's where the concern becomes. And, and so some people may not buy into the entire program, but they may buy into certain parts of it and agree with some of those things. So that, that's where it becomes kind of a concern. Again, the, the uh, right wing in Canada going back a long, long ways, depends how you actually want to define right wing. But if you think of the extreme right wing as being kind of, uh, you know, racist, uh, uh, opposed to all kinds of groups, uh, indigenous peoples, of course, uh, Quebec, again, French speakers is a traditional thing in the past, uh, Catholics, Jews, whatever. Um, if you uh, think of that in those terms, there is actually a very long tradition that. And I think it's incumbent actually on Canadians to recognize our own history. Right, to recognize that we have had these kind of vestiges for a long, long time. I mean, the, the anti-immigrant uh, sentiment that is there in some parts of the general public, this was actually part of official Canadian government policy. Right? Uh, the anti-indigenous sentiments that are there in some of the social context for a lot of people was encoded in government policies. Uh, and we have had uh, extreme right-wing parties and even some traditional parties that have kind of played footsie with extreme right-wing elements for a long, long period of time. A lot of people don't, realizing their own history, realize that their Ku Klux Klan was actually thriving in the late 1920s in Western Canada. In fact, six people who were elected to the Saskatchewan legislature in 1929 were card-carrying members of the Ku Klux Klan. 
So we have a long history of this, and one antidote to this is for Canadians to actually know and confront our own history uh, and how these thematic things are there for nefarious elements to play upon, right? To, to draw us back into that at various times. Ken Sears, uh, I was, I too was at the counter demonstrations, um, but I was also three and a half years ago at two or three of the anti-Bill 6 demonstrations that, that blew up. And from that limited sample size, it seems very clear to me the Bill 6 protests were actually broader and much more heavily attended than mm -hmm. anything that the Yellow Vests have done. Um, so there is that to be taken. The, the country is changing, the province is changing drastically. Mm -hmm. The people who showed up at the Bill 6 protests, the people who seem to have been central to the Yellow Vest stuff, are really the usual gang of suspects. Um, if you follow that stuff, you can, know, you can name names, you can put faces to a lot of the, a lot of the people around who the more incohate, the more Un, um, the more in, almost innocent mm -hmm. protesters coalesce. Yeah. Yeah. So I, to, I guess what I'm saying is we don't, you know, they're there, we have to worry about them, we have to be concerned with them, but they're not really, the, the great mistake the Yellow Vesters made in Alberta was not kicking the neo-Nazis, the two of them in Lethbridge, out as soon as they walked, walked up. Mm -hmm. It took them about three weeks. They, that, and that was because they were these guys were politically really innocent. Um, I'm, I guess I'm trying to formulate the question, Terry. I guess I want a response to that because this is this is part of the continuum. This is not this is not something that just came out of nowhere. Yeah. So as I, I've tried to suggest throughout, I hope is that um, the the some anger and discontent is, if misplaced, it's also understandable, and so. The way to address that is to recognize when it is legitimate, even if the way the solution out of those concerns is not always. Um, it's interesting enough you bring up about uh, Bill 6 because I said earlier that I think one of the things that, uh, it, it's an identity issue. So uh, that, that Albertans, unfortunately, so many Albertans see themselves because of their jobs and the history and everything else as oil equals Alberta and Alberta equals oil. And I think when things are tied to one's personal identity, it's very difficult to let go of that, right? It was the same thing for fishermen in Newfoundland, right? We're fishermen while suddenly there's no cod, so what, who are you? In the same kind of way, I think, as you say, and I think correctly, Bill 6, the protests, were broader and potentially had, had more room to grow because there's also a large number of people in Alberta, despite the fact that we're phenomenally urbanized, there's a lot of people who still see themselves as being where rural people, there's something about rural life says something about our identities. And so I think the NDP, when they, they ruled out Bill 6, and they have since backed off a lot of stuff. They, they know what present uh, idea that you're attacking the family farm, but I think that actually resonated with a lot of the protests at that time. So again, it's an identity thing, and when you get into identity politics broadly, that's where people start to really 
uh, act in not always rational but emotive kind of ways to think. And so you can see through a lot of these protests, these are very emotionally driven things as opposed to kind of a rational discussion of what does the economy look like, where will be the jobs in future, and how do we get out of this predicament at this point in time? Bev. Hi, Trevor. <laughs> Bev Lintel-Atherstone, thank you so very much for coming here. You always elucidate the, uh, the, the amorphous and help us to understand. Uh, I've been unhappy with politics uh, ever since um, high school when I uh, was aware of what was going on and how it was stacked against us. <clears throat> I've only been happier the past three and a half years. So... Um, <laughs> That said... Tell us more. <laughs> <laughs> that said, two things come out of your talk. Um, one is that nice graph that you had of the sort of what was happening politically and then the external little circles. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what, what is it sociopolitically that takes those outside circles to be more mainstream? And the other thing that you talked about, and see if I can remember it now, <laughs> it's gone. You answer that one, and I have another one, too. Thank you. Okay. Uh, yeah, so there's, there's kind of little constellations outside, like the big movement itself, as the diagram shows. And so there are issues that are kind of out there that they may be incredibly important to a small group. They may never get traction. But over time, they may actually become, gain enough traction that they suddenly become part of the regular dialogue. The, the example that comes to mind here most immediately is issues around the environment. Yes. Right? Which is kind of like, not that long ago, is like, ah, tree huggers, they, you know, fringy kind of stuff here. But the legitimacy of some of the arguments and the concerns around it finally began to become embraced within kind of mainstream political culture. Now, within that big tent, you might still have debates about how to deal with something like the environment, or as another example, indigenous peoples and indigenous issues, which again is kind of out there, but now no politician seems to me would avoid or ignore those. So you can have debates still within, but it becomes actually a point of legitimate discussion. This is an important issue has to be dealt with. So gradually, some of those things that are satellites out there do get kind of embraced. And protest movements are just a little bit closer. They somehow alert people to the fact that there's an issue here. But um, they don't, until a certain point, they don't necessarily enter the, the mainstream. And, and the situation, I think, with the Yellow Vest protesters is that they're still dealing with this issue from a fairly narrow perspective, that is, my job, getting a pipeline, etc. But it's not ensconced in a debate about what kind of economy we have and where will be the jobs in the future. So it's it's a bit of a a movement in and out of what larger movements are able to talk about. My second question was, it's very brief. It's from your from your talk, and it was how um, can you clarify for us what change things recently so that politics will never be the same again? Uh, I think there's a, I think unfortunately uh, party politics, very partisan politics has taken over and as I actually was saying over lunch to people, 
the um, our electoral system does not uh, lend itself very well to having kind of big tent politics anymore. We, we used to have big tent politics. Politicians thought that way. Unfortunately, going back in this country to the uh, Reform Party, uh, and most particularly with Stephen Harper, I think the idea that you don't need to have a large number of people voting for you became part of our political culture. And so you just need to play to getting your particular base to win and forget about everybody else. And when you forget about everybody else, after all, when you're a government, you're supposed to govern for everybody. But when you govern only for your base, that's a problem. And in the United States, what you have right now is a president who also governs for his base, right? He has hardened that base to 30% or so that will not leave him. And he's, ga he's gaming it in the sense that if I could just bump it up to maybe 38%, I can win again. And then to hell with everybody else. Politicians here are doing the same thing. So it's partly a change in party politics, which is focused solely on winning an election without having an idea of what am I going to do once I win. It's also contributing to that is certainly uh, uh, the new technologies around media, which are allowing for a kind of divide and conquer and uh, winner-take-all kind of politics, as opposed to trying to think in terms of broader terms about politics as a vehicle for the public good. And I think that's, that's a real problem. Yeah. <laughs> I, I started with the question, you know, what is the most important thing we need to be doing in Alberta? <clears throat> and listening to the questions and your responses to them, it occurs to me that um, we're, we're talking about the issues at a level that perhaps is, a, is not a accessible to a broad enough audience in Alberta. And what I, I'm going to suggest might be missing uh, as a context for engagement and discussion, broadly speaking, uh, in the family context, in the community context, and even the societal context, is fairness. Mm -hmm. We don't talk about what's fair. We don't pose the question, what is fair? And that's a relevant context between these various groups, and especially in this political context, yeah. the perception being on both sides that they're, they're not behaving fairly, so we're not going to behave fairly either. And yeah. now you get this pitch battle. And there's not enough interest on either side to actually maintain some kind of a dialogue around what's the right thing to do, what's fair. But when you add... Yeah, I was going to just add that if we add into this uh, the context of uh, what's fair to our children and future generations, we actually get to a substantive dialogue around what needs to be done. Yeah, uh, it goes to actually what I was just saying about how I think our politics actually have to uh, change. I think the one starting point for that is not immediately to say the other person I disagree with is clearly an idiot and is ill-intentioned. But, but, you know, to, to think about, because most of the time, again, the response is an emotive one. So why are you afraid? What is your big, your big concern here? Why are you so angry? Tell me, articulate that, and we can try to find a fair ground between us, right? Um, hi, Trev. Um, one of the things that you've spoken about... Oh, I'm sorry, Bridget Pasteur. Um, one of the things that you spoke about and has come up in the questions, and in fact, it'll probably follow up on what young men said, um, is future and reality. And to me, that means education. Mm -hmm. 
So I know this is going off on a tangent, but how do we start? I do know that there's a private school in Alberta that starts their kids in kindergarten, coding and with Mandarin. Mm. So, I mean, that, that's partly the future in many ways. So I guess I just would like you to address the importance of education in teaching our young people that grandpa said it was okay to do it this way, my dad is gonna put me in his company, but that's not where the future is. Right. Well, and I'm a big supporter of uh, public education, so I think that, you know, uh, you know, in European countries, uh, kids actually start out in kindergarten early on, so we do know that early onset education is really helpful. Um, I think actually some courses throughout uh, uh, public school systems in terms of, again, back to the idea of fairness, how, how to fight fairly, how to articulate arguments, how to listen. I think that there's a lot of stuff we could learn in terms of civic engagement and how to do it properly that actually should be part of our school system. So yes, reading, writing, arithmetic, that's all really good, but we actually need to be taught early on how we engage as citizens with each other in a way that's respectful and productive and positive. So. Mary Shillington, um, when, uh, when people talk about immigration, uh, I ask the question, and how did your family come to Canada? Because there was nobody in Canada except the indigenous people who owned all the land. So all of us are really immigrants. So what, how, what would you recommend we do when people say they're against immigrants? What, how would you approach that? Well, that's a, uh, a good uh, starting point to ask that question. I mean, one of the things I've learned over the years is that uh, you know, hitting people with facts and figures about uh, various topics actually isn't terribly effective. So you can point out the fact that uh, immigrants actually uh, work incredibly hard, bring a lot of social and economic capital with them, and that they are far, far from being a drain on the system. But you can point those out to people. So I think the, the thing is to go back again and have them articulate, why, what's your concern here? Was there some personal experience you'd had, and how are you generalizing that to issues more broadly, right? So be a starting point. More of a, just a thought. Um, <clears throat> Mike McCaig, I went to all of the Yellow Vest protests down at the City Hall, and they had maybe 10, 12 people, and we had up to 100. But when you looked at the signs, the people that were there protesting, almost exclusively, they talked about um, diversity. And there was some about the uh, support of the LGBT, community and diversity and the indigenous people, and that was just about the, so that's, people weren't worried so much about the other stuff, they were worried about the, the immigration part. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, if you think in terms of uh, big tent politics, one of, one of the things that actually produces a positive social movement, it seems to me, <clears throat> is for people to start to recognize that Issues, for example, of injustice cross all kinds of lines. So right, the connecting point, whether you're talking about uh, the uh, LGBTQ community or ethnic groups or religious groups or, or workers' rights, is that we all have an interest in social justice, right? In, in being able to create a, uh, a good, harmonious community. And uh, so, I think that's the way to actually confront many of those kinds of concerns is we all have a stake in it. Even if we are not a member of that group, we have a stake in making sure that 
that group also is treated fairly because it also will have repercussions for me. Thank you.